0: Hello and welcome back to the Steph Gordon Show. I am joined by none other than my new husband. Welcome back to the show, Tim.
1: Thanks for having me, Steph.
0: So excited to have you on today. Hey, um, I put up some questions on my Instagram story the other day, asking what people wanted to know, and and I gave them a heap of topics to pick from. I think it was like fourteen topics. I actually tagged you; you would have seen it. And there was like 14 topics to pick from and we had about 40 people comment and tell me what they wanted to hear about. And I would say that 70% of people said money. The other topic that was most popular was also finding balance. And so today I would love to quiz you and I guess have a conversation with you because it's what people want to know about, about money, about balance, about, I guess, really putting ourselves back in the startup phase and figuring out exactly what we would do differently. If you're new here and you haven't listened to a podcast with myself and my husband now, gosh, I'm getting used to that, Tim Frey. Tim, tell us about yourself.
1: I am a serial entrepreneur. I've been in business for 13 years. I had multiple businesses, some successful, none, some not so successful. So I learned every lesson that you can learn in 13 years and a lot of money lessons. So, you know, the question's about Money, and not surprising with the current climate at the moment and the quote unquote recession, whether you believe it or not, you know it's it's a, a pressing topic which comes up a lot, especially in the well, especially in business mastermind, especially with the girls. So I'm looking forward to diving into it, giving probably a little bit of a different perspective on money um, and all things money, probably different than you've heard before, especially maybe coming from a male in the business space. I think we tend to have different um, ideas and philosophies on money and generating wealth. Mm.
0: Yeah, so let's dive in. So I wrote out a few just kind of base questions because, you know, everyone wanted to know about money. Everyone wanted to know about profitability. Everybody wanted to know about, you know, I guess being the most maximizing the most, you know, juice from the squeeze in business. And so my first question for you, Tim, is and I've said two because I felt like one was so limited. Mm. What are your two top tips for making money in business?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, separating this between profit and, and revenue are, are two different things. So, revenue obviously is making as much money as possible without really caring or giving a shit about the profit margin. And the profit margin is actually how much, you know, after you've paid all expenses that you actually keep, which is the far more important metric. In terms of making more revenue, just selling something relatively affordably to thousands of people is going to be the simplest way to make revenue. But then, is there actually going to be a profit margin on it? So, differentiating the two before getting into like, tips on making money, I would probably say that you need to look at your service or offer or, you know, product that you're making and and ask yourself, is after all expenses, you know, GST, tax, staff, housing, warehousing, all those types of things, are you making an adequate profit margin to be able to sell this thing at scale and make a lot of money? That's like the first thing before we get into it. And then two tips for actually making more of it right now is like once you've worked that out, I would say like think about it, we're in November when we're recording this. But at that time, we're getting into the festive season. Typically, you know, service businesses get quiet around this time. So how can you capitalize on the upcoming holidays to create a little bit of a buzz around your product or service at this time? So we're thinking like December promotions. We're thinking Christmas promotions. We're thinking 10 days of Christmas. I've seen that. You've run a different promotion every time hitting your, you know, if you're in a service-based business, you know, train for free, work for free, something for free in December to sign up to your service. Like these types of offers I've typically seen have worked quite well. Not saying you have to do that, but theming something around the holidays is generally a pretty good idea. What are your thoughts on those, Steph?
0: I think that was a lot of information. I love it. This is so typical of Tim. He calls it drinking through a fire hose. And um it's exactly what it was like. But let's circle back to point number one, which was about revenue and profit. So You mentioned that, you know, just selling a lot to a lot of people is great for revenue. But let's talk about the fact that, you know, when you started talking about profit, you were saying that, you know, you really have to make sure long-term, regardless of whether you're selling for revenue or profit, that it is actually going to be something that works at scale. And so what kind of math do you run? Or I guess, what would your process be for helping a startup to even think about scale? Because most startups, when they start up in business, they're not thinking about is this scalable once I have team members? Most people who are starting up a business can't even comprehend the fact that they might have team members in the future. So, you know, what is your process for thinking bigger and thinking that much further ahead so that you can actually price for profit?
1: I think like goal one, where I would take this is I said this to um, one of the clients in PMP the other day was to get your business to 100K profit and then worry about scaling it, adding team, all those types of things. I think like the first step is getting to that before you worry about adding any team. And to get to 100K, like a year profit. You have to have a quite a good product as the first thing. And then you need to work out like how much time is that actually costing you to deliver on that service or create that product to make that 100K. And if it's taking you 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week, you know, of actual work, not just, you know, fucking around for lack of a bit speak with it. Like what is the actual hours it takes to create that? Then you'd say, cool, is this thing scalable? And then we can scale it from there. So like first thing is, yeah, can I get it to 100K profit? Yes. Is it taking up most of my time? Like yes or no. And then obviously you can bring people in to make that expert, that process and make that a little bit easier. But the thing when you start adding people in, is your profit margin goes down. So that needs to be calculated into the profit or into your equations from there. I hope that answers the question.
0: really helped me with when we first got started was like just telling me to think 10x bigger. Yeah. So I don't think that you have to like, yeah, I agree with you. Get to your first 100K before you start thinking about scaling. 100%, great. But like, don't play small. Like don't start your business being like, oh, I'm just going to be an old mum and pop shop at home because I can guarantee you that once you get your business off the ground and you get fully booked with your first lot of clients, you're going to want to grow. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so just like think just if you're listening to this podcast, just think with the end goal in mind. So like if you were to 10x your concept right now and have, you know, 10x the amount of demand, 10x the amount of clients and have to produce 10x the amount of of work would you be able to? And if you did, what team members would you need to bring in? And then if you were to bring those team members in looking at the average wages for those team members and also taking into account tax and GST, would you actually be able to afford to continue running that business? And that was something that when I first ran House of Hobby, that was something that you really helped me with was like, we were just sitting in the car one day and you helped me map out basically my my next you know 12 months. And it was so helpful just to sit down and go, yeah. Like think about the future. So, so I think on the back of yours, like my top two money making tips would be like, think big from the beginning, go all the way there. Even if you don't do it, you might not scale it for five years. And you, in fact, you may never scale it, but I'd love for you to think big from the beginning. And then that leads into Tim's, which is like making sure that it's actually profitable long-term moving forward. And that, you know, you're pricing per profit from the beginning and that you're not just, you know, undercharging. Do you think there's a lot of mindset that comes into that Pricing at the beginning. And and what was your mindset like when you first started?
1: Yeah, once again, there's many ways to look at it. I was definitely, I thought I was better than I was when I started. So I had no like problem charging quite a lot. Do you want to talk
0: about what that what that's called?
1: Yeah, it's called the Dunning Kruger effect. Essentially, like you go in just full of confidence, like you are the best in the world. I think, like in my first year of personal trainer, I had on my website best personal trainer. Like, that was in my year ed- one, in my first year. And like, <laughs> it was honestly like confidence through the roof. I was charging like double what the competitors were at the time. Um,
0: okay. And just guys, FYI, it wasn't because he actually was the best. No. Like, when I he says he was his, well, yeah, just, when he was first getting started, like, it wasn't like he was the best because he'd already had 10 years of experience and we just started his business. Like, Tim started his business when he was 18. So, yeah. you know, like, there was no experience yeah. either. Like, so he just thought he was the best. Yeah. yeah there a were lot. people
1: that are doing it for 20 years. I was like, I'm better. Just because I'm me.
0: Can we all just have a bit of Tim confidence in <laughs> yeah, our lives? It's
1: changed. I said, yeah, yeah, I don't have that anymore. Yeah, because of Dunning-Kruger. So Google Dunning-Kruger. Um, I'm going to completely butcher the explanation on this podcast, but check it out because essentially you've got this point where you're in Despair Valley. You'll go up to a peak and you'll be at absolute confidence and then you realize you know nothing. And then <laughs> you dive into Despair Valley, as they call, and then you just keep going up and down mountains, you know, metaphorically in every way.
0: Yeah, at the beginning you're typically like there will be a period in... In your business and I remember when mine was as well but there'll be a period in your business where you just think you're killing it and you're untouchable and nothing could ever go wrong and then it starts to go wrong and then all of your belief systems about yourself are shattered and all of your confidence is shattered and it's ultimately what keeps you humble yeah. you know at the end of the day in business but yeah Dunning-Kruger is a real thing so you came onto the onto the scene in fitness and mm. you were like I'm the best I'm going to charge the best and, Has it, and it's been like that ever since like yeah, you, you came I... out of the gate charging a lot
1: I came out of the gate charging heaps and I still do charge pretty similar amounts than 10 years ago, which, you know, with inflation and these types of things, probably not the smartest thing, but I think the business model has stabilized and become, I've just run a more profitable business now, so I can charge the same amount and spend less on expenses and still make the same amount and have less trouble selling.
0: So, I want to dig in here. You came out the gate charging a lot from the very beginning because you believed you were the best.
1: Mm.
0: Why do you think that other people struggle or come in charging the cheapest? Do you think it's a belief system thing? Like say because maybe they need some runs on the board? Like what would you say to somebody who was just getting into business right now and is thinking to themselves, or you might have been in business for a long time and is thinking to themselves, like, I need to be cheaper so that people choose me?
1: There's one way to know, and it's just like, will the market actually pay it? Like, are you worth it? And if you increase your prices and you get nothing for 12 months and your marketing's hot... And you just can't close, then you'll probably know that, you know, you're overpriced in the market. But I don't think that rarely happens. I think, you know, strategically and methodically, you should increase your prices, especially every year mm. in January is a good time to do it because most people are expecting it. Mm. I think the official inflation rate was seven percent last year. So if you're not increasing your prices in January by seven percent, you're falling behind the power curve financially.
0: Absolutely. And I would just say off the back to the back of anybody here, like you can charge whatever the heck you want. Today, tomorrow, but you have to believe in it enough to deliver that price point on the phone or on a Zoom call or in your sales, in your sales process. You have to be confident enough to deliver at that price point and not self-sabotage thinking that you know everyone's gonna hate you or overworking or burning out. If you truly like Tim, 18, out of the gate with hardly any experience, but think you're the bloody best, you'll convince people that you're the bloody best and you can charge whatever you want. And really it comes down to how much do you believe in yourself? So To wrap that question up, two tips for money making in business. This would be
1: I've got a question for you before we get into this. If you, you know, for me personally, if I go to hire someone, I don't really care how much it costs Mm. because I'm trying to hire that person. Mm. And I know I'm not like the average person, but whatever they're charging, I'm buying it, you know, like whatever it costs for me. So, you know, that's generally how I look at professional services and people I want to work with. I'm just going to pay whatever they're after. So, if you're someone that's cr- been chronically undercharging and people know, like, and trust you, I think they're going to be okay with paying whatever you're charging.
0: Yeah, I I tend to agree. And I also believe, like, I actually will often not go for the cheapest, like, more no. often than not. Like I, like, I wouldn't, in any case... I couldn't think of a reason why I would pick the cheapest. I naturally associate the cheapest with probably the worst. Mm. (laughs) Um, Like, you know, it's, it's, they're going to be subpar in quality. They're going to be overbooked. They're going to, if they're undercharging, they're not going to have the resources. Whereas if someone's overcharging or charging uh, like mid range to above the average price point, I'm more confident that they believe in themselves. I'm more confident that they're going to have the resources to deliver the service. And I'm just more confident about the service that's going to be delivered in general. So if your current tactic to make money is charge less, Tim and I are probably pretty heavily against that tactic. Yeah, for sure. Unless you really, really don't have the confidence yet and you need some runs on the board, then absolutely get some runs on the board first. Let's talk about offers because you know, when we look at, making money in business, it really comes down to actually selling something that people want, right? Mm. So how do you know if your offer is good enough?
1: Simply like uh, are people taking it up is the easiest way to do it. Generally with offers in the fitness industry, specifically what I run is like if you, you know, as a consumer, you can ask yourself if you're listening to this right now and you see like gym promotions on the internet, generally you're just going to go with the cheapest one in a category that you're looking for, especially if you're in a cold audience. So that's the play is like, yeah, you can be the cheapest for an offer, but then what's the long term client value of the client once they come into your facility and they close long term? This is something I really didn't wrap my head around only until the last couple of years. It doesn't really matter what the client pays initially because you just got to get them in the door. Once they know, like, and trust you, they feel the value, they like the team, they like the community, they like everyone they're working with, the long term value is Is incredible. Like, especially for a service like mine and Steph's, it's like just getting someone in the door working with your team is the most important thing you can do. So if you can sweeten the offer off the bat, so much so that it is like a fuck yeah, it is a slam dunk home run every day of the week. I'm signing up 10 out of 10. That's where you need to get your offers to. Like you need to have them so irresistible. And like a tactic here is like, maybe don't worry so much about the profit margin off the bat. This is not great business advice, by the way. Obviously, don't you know shoot yourself in the foot off the bat. But if you can get someone working with you and you can establish a lifelong relationship, if you have a $5,000 a year client and they stay with you for 10 years, that's 50 grand. If you take a little bit of a haircut, getting them in the door, doesn't really matter because yeah. you're still getting a 50 grand client.
0: I would say here, guys, the most important thing that Tim's discussing here is yes, your offer needs to be freaking great. But Your delivery and your service needs to be even more exceptional because if you do a low cost offer to get somebody in the door, you have to be really friggin' sure that once they're in the door, they're not going to want to leave because that's where you get that lifetime value. So like, for example, in Tim's gym, it's like, if we can get them in the door for, let's say, I don't know, something ridiculous, like $7 for a week or something, which is, you know, yeah, (laughs) but like, let's say we did, right? So $7 for a week, we might get someone in the door that we know that once they actually come into the gym, they set foot in, they see our experience, they see our service, they come and they join a few classes, they get to be a part of our community. They have the on-ramp and the onboarding process that Tim's beautifully curated and created. And they have an exceptional first week. And then we have an incredible sales process with them where we tell them all about how we can help them to hit their goals moving forward. They're going to be so much more likely to sign up. But if they came in on a $7 deal and they got ignored, and we didn't follow up with them and we didn't message them if they didn't show up and we didn't touch base at all when they came in and they got they felt like they weren't getting a good service, then they're absolutely or forgotten about, or even, you know, worse, they don't show up at all and no one ever contacts them. They're one hundred percent not going to show up. And so you've just wasted not only your own time, but your profit margins and your own money, probably advertising as well, to get that person in the door. So Yes, a heck yes offer, irresistible offer at the front end needs to be there for sure. And this is one of the reasons why the purpose and profit mastermind is so cheap, right? Mm. Cheap in comparison to what a lot of other business coaches charge for masterminds is because our scalability model is based off of, you know, a bigger community rather than small communities at high margins, right? So It's about having that heck yes offer that gets people in the door so they can experience your community and then you can increase the lifetime value. So instead of a member coming into Tim's gym for a week, they might stay for three years. So the lifetime value of that client is
1: huge. Yeah, I've had a client for eight years and if you think about 300 400 a month times eight years... It's a lot of money. It's
0: a lot of money because, and your lifetime value is really high in your industry considering Mm. like compared to other people's. Yeah. And it's, yes. So if you are sure that you have a great delivery and you can actually deliver at a high quality for a high volume of people, then a low cost entry offer or initial offer is epic. Tim, what would you do if you were a startup again today and you needed to make money fast?
1: Yeah, I love this question. I was just thinking about this. And a quote I like is like, the loudest booze come from the cheapest seats. So you know, contrary to the advice I just gave here, I would be in any niche picking out the highest income earners in that niche and I'd be going after them with an offer or a service or a product. So let's, the first one we'll go through is fitness here. Someone that pays you $400 a week or $50 a week. Who's going to be a better client? Obviously the $400 a week. Who's going to get better results? The $400 a week. Who's going to be more affluent and can resist whatever's going on in the climate at the moment in terms of like, you know, socially, financially, like whatever recession, all that type of shit. The $400 a week client is going to win hands down every time. They're also probably going to be, you know, funner they're going to be a little bit more enjoyable to be around. And they're probably going to teach you something as well. So there's all wins there. So you know, if for fitness, if I was going to do it again, I would probably have like a $400 a week service. I would probably move it a little bit closer to the city. I'd probably have it half the size it is now. I would probably fit it out so it looks really good. And I would just have this really low volume, high cost service working with You know, elite kind of professionals like in business, CEOs, that type of stuff. Just because I love a gym, I probably wouldn't open a gym again. But, you know, like if I were to do a gym again, that's what I would do. Mm. And I think like that kind of higher end model is definitely going to be better going forward, just with the uncertainty in the market at the moment and the world. It's very weird. So that, yeah, the higher end, higher socioeconomic higher income earners are the people I would target in any industry and just go very premium on it. You don't even need like a big social media following to target these types of people. A lot of the times these people aren't even on social media because they've got better things to do than scroll Instagram and TikTok, but they're probably on LinkedIn. So you can find them on there. You don't need 10,000 followers and a blue tick to attract these type of people. So that's probably like if I was starting again, that's what I'd do. What about you, Steph?
0: I think if I was starting again, Look, if I was studying it today and I had the skills that I have now, mm-hmm. then um, one of the things that I th- we've even spoken about it. And guys, if you're interested, definitely hit us up in the DMs and let us know if this is something that we should do. But I love the idea of doing like intensive days with people like yeah. CEO days where you kind of got, like, go into someone's business and you spend an entire day mapping out strategies for them and marketing strategies. And it's just like high cost, one-time sit downs. I would love to just roll into people's businesses and do that. Or even better, like actually invest in people's businesses, you know, for a small Stake and and be part of the decision making process over a period of time, over a long period of time to be able to really support them getting off the ground. And for something like that, I mean, we've seen people for these CEO days charging up to $10,000 a day. So, like, again, very similar to you, like, I would go high cost, low volume. But the difference is that today I have skills and today Tim has skills to be able to do those things. That when we first got started, I mean, you probably had the confidence to pull this yeah. off, actually. <laughs> I
1: hope I would miss yeah, day, yes. but
0: you know, we first got started; it probably wouldn't have been the case. So, if I was a startup again today and I didn't have the skills that I have now, what would I do to make money? I would, and I—I've done this the last two times, and I probably wasn't even consciously aware that I was doing it. But you have to hit the market with something they haven't really seen before. Yeah, and you have to hit the market with something that they need. And you have to really be able to articulate those needs. So, you know, when I first got into business coaching, there was like hardly any business coaches in Perth. I think there was maybe like four of us in Mm. total. There was hardly any. When I first got into House of Hobby, no one was doing it. Like literally we were the first. There was people running a few, you know, a few florists doing their own like floristry workshops, but no one was doing it the way that we did it. So it's about seeing a concept or an idea and then going, okay, how can I take that and make it even better or bring in even more people to it? And I think like, I've always created my businesses with the customer in mind. So it's like, what does she need and how can we make this even more fun for her? And how can we tie in what's cool right now? Like at the time with House of Hobby, no one was doing it with booze, you know? So like, how can we make it more fun? How can we make it something that everybody does and what everybody would enjoy So it's like taking those offers, like, don't jump on a bandwagon of something that somebody is doing. Like, tons of people are doing, like, you want like mindset coaching or life coaching or motherhood coaching. Like, there are so many people absolutely nailing that niche. If you're going to hit that niche, you have to come in and it has to be different. You have to be breaking the mold.
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. Only other thing I would add to that, Steph kind of touched on it towards the end there, was like have a niche. Like don't go into it being like, I'm a mindset coach. You'll join 1,000 other people all barking at the same thing on social media as like, worry about your feelings. Let's feel better. Let's do confidence. Like, People don't want to hear that stuff on repeat. Like, you want to be the mindset coach for CEOs. Yep. You want to be the mindset coach for busy moms. You want to be the, you know, that the mindset kind
0: of thing. coach for people with ADHD. Yeah. The mindset coach for people with, you know, motherhood trauma. Like, it has to be like the more specific that you can be, the mm-hmm. more successful you'll be from the get go.
1: And my second point here is like business has a natural evolution. is either you grow or you die. And at some point, every single business has to reinvent themselves and they need to take their next steps. Otherwise, they're just going to get washed up in the next new thing. There always has to be a progression in what you're doing. There has to be an improvement as well. So if you were to start up again today, that's cool. Start with your thing, but then make sure you have like a 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. Like this is what we do different. This is how we do different. This is how we improve, these types of things. This is what I've done in my gym. I've called it like Helix 1.0. Helix 2.0 like we've changed facility we've added a recovery suite we've changed our group training model we've you know added in all this other stuff. And it's constantly like improving the model over and over where it's not just like for the people on the outside, it's it's the internal marketing as well. So my current clients, they feel like we're progressing and we're moving forward and we're changing stuff and growing because the last thing anyone wants to be associated with is a dying business. Mm -hmm. Like they want to be on the front foot. They want to be cool. They want to be seen. I actually
0: heard a really cool kind of saying recently that, you know, survival of the fittest Wasn't actually true. It wasn't just the fittest that survived evolution. And the reason for that being, like, if only the fittest survived, then, like, you can be sure that sloths wouldn't have survived, right? Mm -hmm. So the saying actually went that, like, it was survival of those who were fastest to change and adapt, right? They were the ones who survived because, you know, the climate was changing or the world was changing around them and their environment was changing and they were able to adapt and change with it. And that's what ultimately allowed them to survive. We as human beings are exactly the same. In order to survive, we have to be able to change and adapt. And like Tim said, if you're not growing, you're dying. And it is the truth because even if it's a, it might be a very slow, gradual death, but if you are not constantly re-evolutionizing your business and constantly not rejigging it and constantly not looking at it and revising, how can we be better? What can we be doing? What can we be adding? Like, it's a constant game that we play in, in our own household. Hey, like right. we are always talking about, okay, what's the next thing to PMP? How do we make it better? Let's change the onboarding. Like my team are constantly like, oh, more change stuff. Yeah, because this is how we keep it alive and it's the same for you.
1: The only other example I have is big big picture one here. It's big macro examples. Like one of the biggest companies in the world is at the moment suffering a big death. And they had a very big rise to power during COVID. When I say the name, you're going to be like, no shit. But they didn't reinvent themselves during that time. Their stock's down 50% in the last six months. And that's Amazon. Amazon, you know, they were the B2C. You buy something and then it's at your house the next day, which was epic during COVID when you couldn't leave the house. But now people are spending money on actually doing things and less stuff. And the whole world has gone conscious of like your environmental footprint, how you're damaging the world. So people are buying less stuff. Amazon, they never. Reinvented themselves. It was just like this is what we do, and now their stock price is down fifty percent, mm. and their, their stakeholders and shareholders are shitting themselves because mm. they don't have a battle plan. And their CEO is saying, "Well, you know, it's going to be back." Well, I don't think it's going to be back. Yeah, like to the same degree it was, unless another pandemic comes same around. Thing.
0: Like Facebook was dying until they so they, they built Meta, you mm. know, because they were trying to do something new, do something different, be the the market leader in something again. And it's like maybe not working for them exactly the way they'd hoped, but ultimately, like that's it, guys. Like you have to be trying new things and and changing. One of the other questions that I got a few times in the DMs was your top tips for saving money in business. Now, the four people who asked me this were like, how do you save money in business? You know, all these sorts of questions. They were all startups, just so you know. When I talk about startups, I'm talking like their first year in business.
1: Yeah.
0: So top tips for a startup saving money in business?
1: Yeah. I'll tell you what I do. So like the end of the month, I'll go through the previous month and I'll look at my expenses. So what are the reoccurring expenses? What are the one-time expenses? Um, and then what are the wages? So wages, everything I pay my staff, reoccurring expenses, everything like rent, electricity, like those types of things. And one time, we just like the purchases through the business. So I would look at those and I would, I would look at my wages or things I'm paying out. And I would say like, is there any way I can maximize this? Are the tasks that I'm giving out to my staff conducive of creating a business performance? And then... You know, that would basically answer those questions for me. I'm pretty happy with where my wages are because I run quite a lean business. In terms of my one time expenses, those are things that you can generally rein in from a business point of view. It's like, Is this purchase that I'm making right now really going to grow my business? And in terms of growing a business, generally it's marketing activities that are going to grow a business. So, you know, yes, you can buy new shit, you know, to serve your customer better, but like, is that really going to be where the business needs to spend money right now?
0: Hey, can I ask you a question off the back of that? Yeah. What would be your like five? Mm. non-negotiable expenses or purchases or i guess investments that you would make if you're a startup again like what what are five things that you would be like absolutely you need to put money into that from the beginning
1: website Mm -hmm. seo branding
0: seo if you have a local business or you reckon always okay cool yep so keep going so seo website yeah branding Uh,
1: branding photography
0: Mm -hmm. surely the last one is coaching
1: yeah, definitely. Um <laughs> coaching and mentorship as well as my top five.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They actually would have been I would have had this like really similar. I probably wouldn't have had SEO, yeah. but I definitely would have had probably for a startup, if you're not good at copywriting, I would have had copywriting in there because which really forms part of your website. Yeah. Because if you're not good at writing yet, and I wouldn't when I say good at writing yet, I hear a lot of people say, I'm just not good with words. And it's like, yeah, well, yet, because you haven't learned the skill. If you're starting from scratch, branding 110%, like Mm -hmm. go hard and like really... Really sit down. don't just do a brand like, oh, I like these colors. so this is why it's going to be my branding. Like really think about the consumer at the end. really good branding, um great website, professional imagery, one hundred and ten percent. These are the things that are going to get you taken seriously from the beginning. These are the things that are going to allow you to charge good money from the beginning, Copywriting, and yeah, probably a website because that's really where people are going to find out about you, potentially, uh, and obviously coaching, um just to collapse the time that it takes you to build those skills from the very beginning.
1: One of the biggest ones is the website. Honestly, the amount of people that log on my website, the gym website, and they say, the reason we inquired with you is because your social media had professional images and all the other gyms didn't. And your website was good and all of them were bad.
0: Yeah, go and check it out. It's... uh
1: www.helixsp.com. It's a brilliant website. Sign up for a free seven-day trial.
0: <laughs> it is though. It's a really good website. Um, we're having ours redone at the moment. Please don't look at mine. But yeah, we're having ours redone at the moment, and it's it's one of those things that like you do. And again, it's a constant evolution. Like Tim and I are probably fiddling around or getting our websites fiddled around with every couple of months. Mm. It's a constant evolution. So, top tips for saving money in business from my perspective would be. um yeah, don't spend money on stuff like the all the things that you think that you need to spend money on like really specifically in the startup phase of business, you have to spend money. Sorry, but you don't get a business off the ground with no spend. Like if you want to get off the ground and you want to make money fast from the very beginning, it's gonna cost money to get it off the ground. So if you're in the startup phase right now, probably don't quit your day job just yet. Like let's have some cash flow there until you are at a stage where you know that you can cover your bills with the demand that you've currently got. But yeah, like it is gonna take you a little bit of money to get it off the ground and get a coach, someone that can help you, you know, I guess start to make those decisions about whether or not that spend is the right investment for your business. One question we got was around failure. And I love this one because I feel like it's not something we get to talk about that often, even though we both had plenty of failures in business. What has been your biggest failure to date in business?
1: I would say mine would be me. I've been my biggest failure in business because at times, especially a couple of years ago, I was a big emotional wreck. Every decision in business was from the heart when it should have been from the head. And I've made that mistake so many times where that old quote, I would be nailing that quote every time. It's like, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over. And that was me to a T. I'm insane with the amount of silly decisions I've made in business because I'm emotional about something. So I totally detach myself from the emotions of business now. And it's a logical decision. And every time I have a chat with my staff and and I mentor them and I mentor other people and coach people in PNP, I put that hat on as like the logical, the most logical answer I can go through here in my head of weighing up all the decisions is definitely going to be the correct decision. In terms of like something that I actually did, I'd say it would be post-COVID the way I delivered a price increase, I would say would be wrong. Many people were annoyed by my delivery of the COVID situation in my gym.
0: Yeah. Tim basically doubled his prices and we lost 50% of our member base. And it just, you know what guys, it just goes to show like communication really is everything because putting the prices up, obviously people were going to get pissed and obviously we knew we were going to lose members, but the way that we delivered it just, it was out of, I mean, we were scared as well. Like there was, it was fear-based and we didn't, when I say we, it was mostly you, but like we didn't deliver it the way that we would have liked. And it didn't come across with the heart and the attention that we actually had because we were making this decision so much from emotion yeah. that we let our emotional mind cloud. You know, what was that? This was actually a really important thing for our clients. We were actually just making it so much about us. And that was just one of those lessons where you constantly have to be putting, especially if you're in business guys, you did like, yes, you got into business to serve yourself. And yes, you got into business because you wanted to make money and have time freedom and yada, yada, yada. But it's not about you. No. Like if you're in business, it is not about you. It is about your clients every freaking day. And You need to be constantly putting yourself in their shoes and seeing it from their perspective and saying, like, okay, how would I react if someone sent this to me? How would I, you know, what would I be thinking if, you know, my service provider doubled their pricing? Like, how would I react to that? And constantly putting yourself in in their shoes. What would yours be? With regard to the getting emotional, obviously, (laughs) Tim and I, we we know. (laughs) I'm an emotional person. But do
1: you know, (laughs) listeners?
0: You might not know that about me. The many, many Zoom calls that I cry on probably gives it away. But I think for me personally, you know, just on that emotional fact, like it took me a really long time to be able to put distance between me and the decisions that I was making in my business, like my emotional and heart space, and start making those decisions from a logical place. And if you're that kind of person, if you're a woman in business, which I'm sure that a lot of those people listening are. You really need to start collecting the data because without the data, everything is gut instinct. And sometimes our gut instincts we can't trust because sometimes our gut instincts are from fear. Sometimes it's like that knee-jerk reaction of like, oh my God, scarcity. I can't do this. And so it's really important that, you know, you're collecting the data that's going to help you to see. So for example, it's like I hear a lot of, you know, oh, I just feel like my engagement's down, or I just feel like people aren't buying on social media anymore. I just feel like, okay, cool go onto your Instagram insights or your social media insights and actually collect the data. What does it look like now versus what it looked like three months ago versus what it looked like six months ago? Have a look at the content that you've been posting. Have a look at what has actually changed and actually collect the data before making those kind of emotional knee-jerk reactions, I guess. That was something that you really helped me with.
1: 100%. And just make better content if your Mm. uh, engagement's down.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Biggest value that I have had in business so far Geez, I I think I've spoken about it a couple of times before when I had House of Hobby and we were sitting in the car park out in Ellenbrook one day and I realized that I was making, not only was I making no money, (laughs) I was actually making a loss in the business because I was only counting revenue and I wasn't counting profit. And I was like, oh, we're making so much money. I'll hire more people without looking at, like we discussed, you know, every time you hire a person, you need to be reviewing your profit margins because every single hire is going to chew into the profit that you're making. And so For every hire, you either need to be able to make that amount of money plus profit back, or you need to be able to increase your prices to be able to cover that cost. Otherwise, you're going to end up shooting yourself in the foot like I did, where I ended up having to make redundancies and fire people because I could no longer afford to have them in the business because I was only measuring my business on revenue. So guys, profit is king.
1: 100%.
0: Final question. We had a lot of questions about balance. And I actually think that we're really good at this. Hmm. It took us a long time. Like It definitely was not overnight. No. It's taken us years to get here. But we, I feel like we are really nailing the balance thing. How do you think you've managed to keep balance in business and life?
1: At the start, I definitely didn't have any balance. It was literally just work as hard as possible, make as much money as possible, and then you'll have a good life one day. That was my first five years in in business, I would say. And then uh, I kind of forgot about having fun, And then I just realized my life sucks. And at that point, when you realize your life sucks and you're dreading Monday, then you're like, I am an entrepreneur. I can do what the fuck I want whenever I want. So why don't I just do that? So at that point now, my current process is I write a list of things to do per day, not shit like do a social media post or like contact client, like actual stuff that's going to move the needle in business. And I do the top three and execute on those every day and they're like actual big tasks. So if it takes me 20 minutes, takes 20 minutes, takes five hours, takes five hours, but they get done. And once they're done, I can think about having a day. So usually I'll do that at like 7, 8 in the morning. And then my day is usually wrapped up about one and then I can do what I want. So that's, you know, hang out with you, walk the dogs, go for a skate, go for a surf, get a massage, like those types of things. And then we generally try to take Sundays off together and usually do something on Saturdays and Sundays together. Yeah. So how would you keep balance?
0: We know that balance has been something that's taken me a long time to figure out because I'm a hustler, as I'm sure many people listening to this podcast will resonate with. And I think a lot of the reason why I really struggle with balance was because I believed that I had to work hard because I believed that if I didn't work hard, it would all fall down because I believed that I felt guilty for taking time off, for taking days off when you know, there was more to do. There was more growth to be had. And, and I really had to dig into what I was making that mean. Because ultimately, the reason I was feeling that way and the reason I felt like I had to keep working, that I couldn't take breaks, the reason that I, I had to keep showing up and I felt guilty was because I was in scarcity. Because I thought it was all going to run out. Because I thought I was an imposter. Because I thought that imposter syndrome means that, you know, I don't deserve to be where I am and everyone's going to find out. So I just have to keep working hard because I didn't really believe that I I had earned what I had created. And so once I addressed the fact that it was scarcity and I chose to live abundantly, actually abundance is something that you have in this moment right now. Like, you know, Tim and I can look out the window and we can see this beautiful sunshine, these gorgeous trees, a beautiful backyard, a pool. And like, we're so lucky to live in this You know, in this state, in this country, to have each other, to be sitting on a couch, to have air conditioning, to have four walls, to be able to eat food. Like, we are so abundant, even just with our base, you know, our our base survival instincts. Like, we're alive and we are safe. And so, when I started switching out of that scarcity mindset into that abundance mindset, that, you know, actually, I'm so happy with what I have right now, and anything extra is amazing. And I know that when I spend money, I know that eventually it's going to come back around. And once I stepped into that mindset, business and balance became really easy for me. And one of my life coaches said to me a couple of years ago, you need to create a life. And this is kind of sentiment to what you were saying before, that you don't constantly want to escape from. Mm. And I always find that when I'm getting burnt out, I want to take a holiday or I want to run. That's my natural feeling. And whenever I'm feeling that, it's now acknowledging that I'm just not taking enough time out in my days. Because if I was taking time out in my days, I wouldn't feel this desperate need to run and to escape from my life. So... Probably a bit of an indication to you guys, maybe if that resonates, that if you're feeling that need to run or you're feeling like you have that realization, like Tim did, where you're like, I'm not happy. And I, like Tim and I went through this phase, we worked so much for so long that we forgot what fun was. Mm. And we actually had to sit down and like write lists of mm. what fun was because we didn't even know how to have fun anymore. Like yeah. we just forgot. And now we're in a really good place where like things are fun again.
1: Yeah, just another ultimate for that is you could set it up in like cycles and sprints. It's like you could do a six week sprint, take two weeks chill, six week sprint, two week chill, or you could do six weeks, two weeks, and then one week off and take a holiday. You could do it in any cadence, duration that you'd like, but you know, there's a really famous strength coach. You guys won't even know him and I can't believe I'm saying this on a business podcast. His name was Charles Poliquin and he he would schedule in his year ahead of time. So he would plan out when his holidays were. He was two weeks off here. He was going to work for six weeks here. He was going to do this year at the start of the year and he would stick to it religiously.
0: Well, who was the guy that we were listening to the podcast and he was saying that he has a sabbatical? Was it Tim Ferriss?
1: Yeah, it was on the Tim Ferriss show.
0: Yeah, and he was saying he takes all of December off every year and he sets himself up that way so he can take the whole month off. And I'd love for you to just listen to your heart and your gut right now. If I said that you had to take all of December off, how does that actually make you feel? It probably fucking terrifies you, the thought of taking an entire month off. And so... Like that's exactly what you probably need to do is find ways to do that if that sounds good for you. But yeah, there's so many, like being the entrepreneur means you get this choice. Like how lucky are you to be able to do like a six week sprint and then have a week off if you wanted to, or to be able to like me, I take a couple of hours off in the middle of the day, every day to be able to read my book or lay in the sun or, you know, like it's, I got on a one-on-one call the other day and one of my clients was like, you look so brown and refreshed. And I was like, yes, it's called resting. (laughs) You should try it sometime. It's crazy how good it is for you.
1: Yep, I couldn't agree more. It's been a, it's been a pleasure to see Steph actually enjoy her life.
0: Mm, yeah, because it wasn't always that way, guys. So if you're feeling that way, please like figure out what fun looks like to you. Figure out exactly what it would look like. Like, you know, at what point in the week do you start burning out? What, how do you need to readjust your schedule? What support can you get in? But make sure that if it's outsourcing or hiring somebody, that you're checking your price points and your profit margins so that you can grow. And Tim and I have incredible teams that allow us to also have a bit of balance, which we are so lucky for and so grateful for them, but have also worked really hard to, to be able to bring them into the fold as well. Guys, I hope that you loved today's podcast with Tim and thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Guys, we would love to know what your biggest takeaway was. If you could take a screenshot of this episode and be sure to tag myself at Steph Gordon underscore underscore and
1: at Tim Frey, dot in the middle, two wise.
0: <laughs> and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Also, one last little thing, because this was something that actually got asked and I thought it was hilarious. Someone asked if we got a prenup.
1: No, we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, because Steph and I were both broke when we met, so it doesn't really matter. We've kind of built everything together, so I'm not concerned anyway. Yeah, nothing is nothing.
0: Yeah, yeah, we yeah, uh, we didn't come into this relationship with money. We came in broke and scrounging and desperate. Uh, so there's nothing to to protect from a prenup. But also, if what you mean also by prenup is, you know, have we protected any of our current assets or anything like that? Not everything that Tim and I are doing is shared, and you know, we don't intend on um spitting up i don't think anyone does but we definitely don't
1: yeah no one does
0: yeah so just in answer to that question no prenup we're all in 110 that's pretty much our style yeah really
1: we we have business trust anyway that's so not really an issue but yeah no prenup
0: no prenup anyway guys go and have a really beautiful day tag us and let us know what your biggest takeaway was i hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you soon bye babe thank you for tuning into today's episode it means the absolute world to have you here with me if you want more head to the show notes below to check out our latest free resources along with the exclusive link for podcast listeners to book in a free 15-minute strategy session to find out how you can boom your biz